Ano. Well, good morning, Crossroads. It is good to be here at the North Glen campus as we continue to worship together by opening God's word. I want to welcome those of you joining us at our Thornton campus, Fort Lupton, online, wherever you may be. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be in verse 30 in just a few moments. And as we get started today, I just want to take a moment uh, to say thank you. Uh, you are an incredibly generous church. This last week, uh, all of our staff got uh, their uh, part of the love offering, and uh, it's divided out equally among the staff in every way, and the checks were uh, just generous. And I, so I just want to say thank you uh, from the staff for your generosity as a church. It is amazing to be able to serve this uh, church week in and week out and to watch God work in just some really, really cool ways. And so thank you for that. Uh, today, we are wrapping up our series that we've been calling Heartbeat, and if you're new with us, welcome uh, to Crossroads. My name is Matt Manning. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church, and just to kind of give you a little history, if you're new, of where we've been in this series so that you understand a little bit of where we're going today, uh, that on January 1st, 2020, Pastor Kim, our senior pastor of 28 years, retired, and on that day, uh, I took over as the senior pastor of this church. And knowing that this was coming uh, this year at the beginning of 2020, uh, we were looking at the calendar and, and really decided that maybe what would be a really good ser sermon series is for me just to take a couple of weeks to really share my heartbeat. See, every single one of us has experiences that have really shaped our lives. We have uh, internal motivations that drive us. We have giftings from God uh, that he's given to us. And all of that, all of that put together makes up who we are. And I'm no different than that. That I, have, that I have experiences that have really shaped the way that I see the world. And I have internal drives and motivations and passions uh, when it comes to ministry and life and the world. And God has given me a particular gifts in order that I might lead this church for this season and this time. And so my prayer, my earnest prayer as we've stepped into this series is that, that through these four weeks that you would get an opportunity, just a chance to see a little bit, maybe a little more intimately than maybe you've ever seen before, who it is that I am. And the way that God has shaped my life and the way that God has gifted me and used me and given me these experiences that really drive the way that I'll lead as your senior pastor. And so for four weeks we've been at this. And so in week one, if you were here, uh, we took a look at really my foundational passion. That, that passion that just drives almost everything in my life. And that is God's glory. And if you were here that first week, I shared a story about how God had, had brought me to this place really during my freshman year of college. And really give it me this verse, revealed this verse to me out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that became a life verse for me. And that verse, if you don't know it, goes like this. The Apostle Paul is talking uh, to the Corinth church, and he says this. He says, whether you're eating or drinking, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is, in your work, in your vocation, in your marriage, in your singleness, in your parenting, in your recreation, in your entertainment, whatever it is that you're doing, all the way to whether you're eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. And for the first time in my life as a freshman in college, even though I was a believer, that there was this desire that came over me, this real desire 
to be about God's glory in my life. And for the last 20 or so years of my life, every morning I've woke up and I've just prayed this simple prayer. Like, God, let this day be for your glory. And then I try to live it out the best that I can. Week two, we talked about my passion for the scriptures and for the Bible. See, I just have come to, come to realize in, in my life that as I've lived out my life, that if our chief goal, if our, our primary purpose in life is to live for God's glory, and the way in which we do that is by enjoying him and, and by delighting in him, then we have to take the words of Jesus seriously in John chapter 15, where he says to us that I've spoken these things to you. I've given you these words, readable words, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And I'm just telling you that, that I've experienced that so many times in my life, the joy of Christ in me as I open up God's word and as he reveals something to me that just gets me excited and passionate. And there's something in me that wants that for you, it wants that for our community, it wants that for the cities in which we live in, to experience that joy time and time again when it comes to opening God's word. Last week, if you were here, uh, you heard about my passion for the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that, that God loves us, that Jesus came to die for us because of our sins, that he died on the cross three days later, raising again, proving he was who he says he was, so that we might have life for anyone who believes. And if you were here, here last week, you heard the story of my grandfather and the great legacy that I came from. And how all of that began with him one night falling to his knees in desperation and crying out to God to save him. And it was the gospel that had the power to change that man's life that ultimately changed my life, that has changed your life. It's the power that we live in day in and day out, the resurrected power of Jesus to live this life that he's given to us. Today, week four, as we, as we close up this series, I want to share with you another passion of mine. You can think of it as like a, a fourth pillar, and that is around the passion, my passion for prayer. That I have a deep, deep conviction, a deep, deep passion for prayer. It hasn't always been that way, but almost every morning, and I share this with you, not so that you do it and, and kind of idolize it, but just so that you get a glimpse of kind of how my life works. But every morning I wake up at about 5.15, and I do so to create enough time and space in my life that I can read the scriptures and that I can spend time praying and communing with God. That it's just become a non-negotiable in my life. And so like I have every week part of this, as part of this series, I want to share with you a story from my life where God impressed upon me the importance of prayer. In fact, last week at the 930 service, I was talking to someone here at North Glen Campus, and they were jokingly saying that this sermon series should have been called Storytime with Matt. And so, if you're ready... Like, get your blanket, snuggle in, here's another story for you. In 1987, my sister Katie was born. We were living in California at the time. I was six years old, my brother was five, uh, four, and we were so excited to get a baby sister. I mean, we were, the day that she was supposed to come home, we literally sat in front of our garage, in front of the house, all day, waiting for her arrival. Like, we were so pumped to be big brothers. In the early years of my sister's life, when she was a baby, she looked a lot like the Olsen twins. Did, did, do you guys, any of you remember Full House, the show Full House? Just, yeah, raise your hand, all of our campus. Yeah, if you remember. Okay, yeah. So Full House, not Fuller House, all right? If you're teenagers in 2017, Fuller House is like the knockoff later version, all right? Full House was part of the ABC network, TGI Friday, like must-see TV event during the 80s, all right? 
It was a show that we loved as my family, all right? We watched it every week. We loved that show. Well, my sister looked just like the Olsen twins who played the baby in that family. So much so, remember, we're living in California, that my mom would go out in public, and she would be at, like, the grocery stores, and people would come up to her and ask her if that was the star of the show. Like, my sister was a star. It was remarkable how close she was. Well, by 1993, we had moved to Denver. And Katie was a sweet, vibrant, kind five-year-old. Everybody loved her. She played hockey like her brothers. And while she was a fairly normal five-year-old, there was something that was a little bit off. That occasionally she would go through these extreme bouts of pain. And when she went through these extreme bouts of pain, what would happen is that she would begin to kind of crunch over like she was like a 90-year-old woman. And that she would walk like this. That she would complain about pain in her stomach and, and even in her legs. And what was most odd is that when she made it to kindergarten that year, that she could not sit on the floor like the rest of the kids crisscross applesauce. She couldn't do it without, without it hurting. My parents, during the season, took her to pediatricians and doctors all over the Denver area. They would do tests and scans. They would look at her legs. They would check out her stomach. But there was never any explanation. In fact, one pediatrician told my mom that it was all in Katie's head, that this was, that this was all in her head, and that she needed to go see a, a child psychologist in order to get it worked out. During this time, we had a friend, his name is Bill Schuler, and Bill Schuler was an orthopedic surgeon. We knew Bill not only because his son was my brother's best friend, but also because every other year I was in his office because of a hockey injury. And one day, uh, my mom was just sharing uh, Katie's story really at the end of her rope with Dr. Bill and Bill looked at her and said why don't you bring Katie in I'll, I'll do some scans for you we'll see if we can't figure out what's going on they made the appointment Dr. Bill ran the scans he did some tests and what they found was severe scoliosis now you may or may not be aware of this but scoliosis is actually quite common in teenage girls but almost completely unheard of in five-year-olds and the fact that the scoliosis was as severe as it was was an indicator that something bigger was wrong. Dr. Bill sent Katie immediately to, to Children's Hospital here in Denver to see a man, a doctor by the name of Dr. McCleary. Dr. McCleary took her in, put, did an MRI scan, and soon the family was hit with the news, my family was hit with the news, that the severe scoliosis, the pain in the stomach, the pain in the legs, the hunched back, walking over, the inability to sit crisscross applesauce in kindergarten was because of a seven-inch astrocytoma tumor growing in her spinal cord near her brainstem. The news was devastating. On March 2nd, 1993, Katie was admitted to Children's Hospital here in Denver. We were told that if this tumor had been found just a few weeks later, it would have been found in her autopsy report. There was so much pressure in her spinal cord in this time that any sudden movement could cause a rupture and kill her immediately. That a fall on a playground could kill her immediately. That a fall in the ice arena killing her immediately. And all of a sudden, our rather peaceful, good suburban life was turned upside down. The doctors quickly decided that her only chance of survival was to remove the tumor, an extreme and risky surgery. The surgery involved cutting into the spinal column, literally cutting off the spinal of the column, top of the column, placing it onto the table, opening up that spinal column, cutting into her spinal cord, and using a medical device to detect, liquefy, and extract the tumor that was wrapped around major arteries and her nervous system. The risks of the surgery were huge. Just a few years earlier, 
any idea of a surgery on the spinal cord would have simply been unheard of, but in 1993, this very surgery had been done on seven adults in the world, a few times in New York, a few times in Ontario, Canada. And it just so happened that Dr. McCleary had been the assisting surgeon on four of those surgeries in New York before coming to Denver to work at, Dem at uh, Children's Hospital. The next two days passed rather quickly after the diagnosis. They needed to get the swelling down in Katie's spine, and so they pumped her full of, of high-dose steroids. Dr. McCleary and his team of doctors and nurses brought my parents in to explain the surgery and the risks that were involved. It was overwhelming. But as they explained what was going to happen in the surgery, they said at any moment Katie could die on the operating table. They could hit a main artery, killing her almost immediately. They could hit a nerve that would, de a nerve that would deaden and shut down major organs, her dying within hours. They could hit other nerves, and upon those hitting those nerves, those nerves could deaden, and she could be paralyzed in any, any number of spots. Some of these surgeries, that this, of the seven surgeries that had been done, a few patients had died on the operating table. Most of them were paraplegics or quadriplegics. One of them was a paraplegic. Add to the fact that this spinal cord surgery had never been done in Denver, there was fear and terror and uncertainty reigned. After the doctors explained the risks of the surgery and, and the procedure that was going to happen, Dr. McCleary looked at my parents and said, in order to do the surgery, we need a sign, you need to sign away the liability. My mom, obviously overcome with the grief and the uncertainty of her daughter's future, looked at Dr. McCleary and said, I cannot sign my daughter's death certificate. She got up, ran out of the office. Dr. McCleary looked at my dad and said, I don't know if it'll be this week or next, maybe next month, but without this surgery, your daughter will die and she will die soon. I only need one signature. That for the previous two days, my dad had spent time in the chapel, praying on his knees, pleading with God to save his daughter. And now with the full weight of my sister's life on his shoulders, he took the paper with his hands shaking and he signed his signature to it. He left the room going and looking for my mom. He found her in the bathroom, crying. They held one another, prayed, comforted each other, prayed for a miracle with the bleak outlook, and began to pray for the worst. My sister went into that surgery, and for 11 hours they worked. Dr. Schuler, with his credentials, was able to be a part of that surgery. Every hour he would come out and, and give us updates of what was going on. Those hours felt like years. After those 11 hours, Katie came out of surgery. She survived. That was a miracle in and of itself. They had been able to remove about 95% of the tumor. She was in critical condition, unable to move, ventilator helping her breathe, a critical nurse by her side for the next 24 hours. She had survived the surgery, and like I said, that was a miracle, but unbeknownst to us, God was just getting warmed up. See, over the next few hours, she was able to open her eyes. And as she opened her eyes, she seemed to understand and was cognitive of what was going on. And then, a few hours after that, she started swatting flies above her head. See, she was hallucinating because of the medicine, but the real miracle was that she was able to move her right arm. By the end of 24 hours, the doctors came in, tickled her feet, and she was able to move her toes. Within a week, 
the nurses and the doctors came to my mom and said, hey, we need to talk to you about something. We need to move Katie out of the ICU. My mom was completely confused because we had been told that Katie would be in the ICU for probably for months. And she, they said, look, um, your daughter, she's asking for food. And we don't feed patients food in the ICU. We got to move her to a regular room. In the meetings in the following days with doctors and nurses, they started to use the language of miracle. Five weeks after the surgery, my sister walked out of Children's Hospital. As my dad and I followed out that day, Dr. McCleary pulled us over and he looked at my dad and he said to him, I wish that I could take credit for this, but there was a higher power at work. I was 12 years old. The impact of those words on me, God chose to save my sister in the most miraculous of ways. Almost a year after her surgery, almost a year today, that tumor that only had a 5% chance of ever coming back began to grow again, this time even more devastating. The tumor showed up back again. This time it was growing on her brainstem. It was determined that it was inoperable. During these 12 months since the first surgery, we had started attending a church called Crossroads Church right here on 104th in Huron. Pastor Rowan Taylor had just retired. A new pastor named Pastor Kim had taken his role, has taken his space. And as we entered into the church, Pastor Kim heard about our story and he rallied the church around our family. We were invited to a service on a Sunday night called the Amazing Grace Service. And on that night, this entire place here at Northland Campus, completely full with the church, invited us down right here in front and laid hands on us and prayed for another miracle. It was decided that Katie's only chance this time was intense chemotherapy. For 18 months, she would be on chemo. It took her toll on her body. It ravaged her body, wiping out any chance for her ever to have kids. But our prayers were once again answered, and a miracle was made. 18 months after she started chemotherapy, that inoperable tumor at the edge or on her brainstem was completely eliminated. Over the years, there would be three more surgeries, one more inside the spinal cord as that tumor came back a third time, a surgery to implant a stent, a full torso uh, brace to fix the scoliosis, a surgery to fuse her spine, to insert titanium rods because of how many times her little spine had been broken apart and put back together. 10 years of trials. I can't tell you how many times we were faced with the reality that this may be the last time we ever see Katie. During those 10 years, I started when I was 12, and by the time it all ended, I was married. And in the midst of all of this, God taught me through prayer, through prayer, what it is to surrender my life to him, to give over everything to him, to commune with him. It was in the trial of those 10 years that deep passion for prayer was forged in my life as I realized how fragile this life is, how uncertain this life could be, how much I want to be in control and the realization that I am not, that it was through prayer that God taught me to surrender and to trust in him no matter what the circumstances are or the diagnosis or the possible and even likely outcomes are. I came to know that this in life, and even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that God is sovereign and that God is good. And in that, I could find rest and peace and joy and hope. The greatest miracle, maybe of all, is that 20 years after that first diagnosis on 2012, 
Sadie had her first son. Here's a picture of her family. That's her awesome husband, David, their oldest son, Hudson Cord, and then their baby girl, Larkin. Katie lives every day for God, knowing better than most that this life is a precious gift. She's one of my greatest heroes. In Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Roman church, says these words. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That when Paul is talking to the Roman church, he gets to the very end of this letter and he says, I appeal to you, I plead with you, I'm crying out with you. Strive for me in your prayers. Listen, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. That it is fully aware, it realizes, it knows that because of the sin in this world that life is hard. That life is difficult, that life is a battle, that life is war. And that victory involves fighting. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, I'm pleading with you, church. I'm crying with you. Would you strive with me? Would you fight with me? That's what the word strive here means. Would you fight for me in your prayers? And the striving that we understand Paul to be talking about here, the, the one who we are to be striving with is God himself. That we strive in our prayers, we fight with God himself, and as we think about this, it does not mean that we fight God like he's some enemy to be conquered, like, like we're trying to bend his will to ours. That's not what the fight is about. The fight means that we see God as our only hope, and in our desperation, we take hold of him and we refuse to let go of him. We see this time and time again in scripture. We see it in Deuteronomy as Moses comes to God, striving for the people of Israel. We see Hannah in her desperation as she longs for a child, striving with God to give her a son. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, striving with God as he's dripping drops of blood under the ground, praying, praying for the cross. That time and time again, in every case, we see that in those moments that God is the only hope, the only hope. And in their desperation, they cling to God and refuse to let go. In every case, there's this intensity within the scripture that I think Paul had in mind as he's writing to the Roman church. Strive with me. Strive in your prayers. Fight in your prayers on my behalf, church. Because there is a realization in Paul's world and in Paul's mind that unless the church gathers together and strives together in prayer, then all hope is lost. Paul, in the beauty of Romans chapter 15 here, says, look, I want you to, to strive together, fight together in prayers for me. So that, verse 32, he gives us a reason. He says, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Listen to this. What, this is what Paul's saying. He's calling the church. He says, look, church, this is what we should be about. We should be about striving prayers, that we should fight for one another in the prayers so that when we are together, we experience joy and refreshment. That word refreshment literally means to rest, to lie down in bed. That's what the word means. See, it was Jesus himself who, who said these words, isn't it? 
He said, life is going to be hard. And when your burdens are too much to bear, you bring them to me and you'll find rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me and find rest for your souls. As we walk through this life, we realize that to follow Jesus means to rest in Jesus. And time and time again, what we see demonstrated us to us through the scriptures is that that resting comes from times of communing with God when we realize that God is our only hope in this world and that my only chance is to hold on to him as long as I can. That that's where we find rest. That's where we find hope. That's where we find our peace. That's where we find our joy. And Paul, in this moment, in deep distress in his own life, says, look, church, would you be willing to strive with me in prayers? Would you be willing to hold on to God with me in prayers? And in doing so, we will find rest and we will find joy. And maybe the most interesting thing about these few verses here is that this isn't a personal thing. That Paul says, don't do this like in your prayer closet alone by yourself. He says, do this in the church. Would you do this together? Strive together on my behalf. That we fight and we rest together. Strive with me, Paul says. Listen, because of my history, because of what I went through with my sister, because of the way that I saw the church rally around our family, that there is a deep desire within me that we would be a church that strives, that fights together in prayer. And that in that we would find our rest. In that we would find our peace. That there is a deep desire within me that so longs for this church to be a striving prayer church. And so today, as part of this message, my question is, is, is would you be willing to strive together as a church? Would you be willing to, to go at this together? Because deep within me, I, I want a church, I want to lead a church that strives together in prayer. And so I'm putting out a call this weekend for 80 people to join our prayer team. For 80 people. We already have 50 people on the prayer team. And those are the ones that you see at the campuses walking around with the yellow lanyards that have buttons that said, I can pray for you. They're amazing people willing to pray. But the question that I'm asking today is, would you be willing to join that team? See, the pastors, we have, we have a dream. We have a dream that, that one day that our services, in our services, that prayer isn't regulated to the end, that, that, but that prayer is the highlight of our time together. That all of our world is longing for a transcendent experience with God. Not to know that God is just real, but to know that God is with us. That we long for that in our lives. And we realize, come on, all of us do. We all realize that the place where that happens the most, when we experience God most in our lives, is when we commune with him, when we go to him in prayer. We want prayer not just to be at the end of our service. We want prayer to be the highlight of our service. But we need people to step up. And to be willing to strive with others in order to do that. We have a deliverance team here at Crossroads Church. You may or not, may not be aware of this. But it is common for us and becoming even more common for us. For people in the community to call for prayer looking for deliverance. Get this. Unchurched, unchristian people are calling the church in order that we might strive with them in prayer. Even just two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we had, we had a man call the church, scared to death to go to his house because of what was going on. And he asked, can do you have anybody who you can send over just to pray for me? We do and we did. That God is at work in our community.
communities. And we want more people involved in that ministry. That I have a dream of one day that our church of hosting prayer retreats. Where we, where we give guided experiences of prayer for, for people to come in and just to experience God for an entire day in silence and in community and, and in all of those things to experience God in mighty and powerful ways. And in order to do all of this, we need people with the gift of intercession, with the gift of prayer to step up and say, I'll serve on those teams. See, we want this to happen. But we need to say, we need people willing to say, I will, I will. Loretta Dudley, Ivan Musichinko, Rick Gaskell, those are our prayer leaders at this church. And this weekend, if you want to be a part of that prayer team, here's what you can do. In the back of your chairs and in your pews are little cards called Connect Cards. They have information that you can put on there if you would fill that out for us. And then in the big white space in the bottom, if you would just write prayer team, Drop that into the offering plates as they're passed today. And then our prayer team in the next couple of weeks will get a hold of you, will train you, will help you know what to do when it comes to the prayer ministry. See, as your senior pastor, I just need you to know that from the very bottom of my heart, I want this place to be a house of prayer just like Jesus said it would be. And so here's what I want to do at all of our campuses. I know for some of you, you're, you're going through really tough times right now, and you're barely holding on, and you're doing it by yourself the best that you can, but what would be more meaningful than anything is if someone just came alongside you and strived with you in prayer, and so I'm going to do something today that's probably a little bit uncomfortable. We don't do it often, but I'm just going to ask if you would just join in with me in this moment, that I would be truly remiss if I preached a sermon like this and shared my sister's story and the power of prayer, but then did not offer you a chance to receive the same prayer, to receive the same kind of community that I received some 20 years ago. And so today, even though it might be a little bit uncomfortable at all three of our campuses, if you're in need of prayer, if you have something going on in your life where you need someone to pray for you, if, if you have, have a friend or a family member that's struggling and they need prayer, if you would be willing, what I want to ask right now is that you would just stand up right now. If you need prayer in your life or for someone in your life, would you just stand up right now? Just go ahead and stand up. Yeah, thank you. Now here's what I'm going to ask the rest of you to do. If there's someone around you and if you're comfortable, if someone's around you, would you just kind of walk towards them and put a hand on their shoulder as I pray? You can just get up and you can, if you're comfortable, and just put a hand on their shoulder for the people around you. Let's bow together and let's pray. Let's strive and fight in our prayers this day. Father, we come to you, Lord, knowing that it's here in prayer that we experience your power, that it's here in prayer that we commune with you, that it's here in prayer that we find our rest, our joy, our peace, and our hope. And so, Lord, here we are, a church, a group of people pouring our hearts out to you, Lord, saying that we need you, that in our desperate moments, we need you. And so, Lord, as the people have stood across to all of our campuses, God, I know some of their stories. For some of them, they're fighting in their own life. Lord, that they have something going on in their health, a cancer or, or a disease that is wrecking their life. And Lord, they're looking to you. They're looking to you for healing. They're looking to you for peace. 
And so, God, I pray that you would give it, that you would bring that to them. God, for some, Lord, they're standing because they're watching a family member much like I did. Lord, be ravaged by this world. And Lord, as they watch their health deteriorate, not knowing that there is anything that they can do, Lord, they're looking to you. And in this moment, Lord, Lord, we pray for your healing. God, we pray for your peace. We pray for your rest. God, we pray for, to you, God, who, who we know is sovereign and in control even when we're not. God, I know that for some of the people standing, Lord, that there's, that there's problems in relationships. God, a, a, a parent and a child relationship gone bad, a, a spouse, a marriage, marriage turning the wrong way, Lord, with divorce upon the horizon. God, that I know in this room, even right now, that there is deep hurt because of the relationships that are fractured. And God, in the midst of that burden, Lord, we ask you to heal. We ask you to bring your peace. God, I know for some that they're struggling in their work, that they've maybe even lost their job. And the uncertainty of what's before them and the way that they're going to care for themselves and their families in an economy that is so tough. God, they need your peace. Would you bring it? God, we strive together in prayers to you. God, I know for some, maybe they stood not having ever known your peace and your joy. Not ever knowing what it means to walk with you and to be able to, to stand and to pray with you. So God, if those are people standing today, Lord, who maybe for the first time acknowledge that you are God, that they are a sinner in need of grace, falling at your cross, confessing that they bring their sins to the cross, knowing that you died and three days later you rose again, giving them life. Lord, if that's them today, Lord, I pray that they would just pray that prayer. God, you are so good to us that in life, and even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are there, and you are good. And in that, we find our rest. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, thank you, friends.